Good morning, Twitter. I'm Saeed Jones. He is Isaac Fitzgerald. The news is a lot this morning. am to dm is here, though. Yep, and you are watching it. Here's a tweet from ESPN reporter Joel Anderson. I thought Twitter's algorithm just happened to be prioritizing all of this old bad news in my timeline, but it turns out that bad news is just the news. You wake up. Exhausted. exhausted, read the news, exhausted, exhausted. go to work, exhausted, exhausted. to I'm the sorry, tune of Beyonce's Beyonce. Flawless. Sorry, girl. Yeah. No, it's a lot. You tweeted that this yeah. morning, but and I related to it. It's fair. Here's what I'm trying to remind myself. Like, we know it's exhausting, it's intense to read the news, it feels overwhelming. I'm instead trying to think about, one, uh, gratitude that I have a job mm. where I can talk about the news, mm. where we can come in here every morning and ask questions that we want, you know, genuine, thoughtful, smart answers to from mm -hmm. reporters, from Congress people, you know. So that that's a luxury because most people go to work and have to kind of set like, that look aside. Phone, look on Twitter on the side, you know, mm -hmm. while, while Kirsten Nielsen's giving a crazy press conference. The other thing is, you know, the fact that it's exhausting or whatever, I mean, means I'm, I'm still human. Right. Like we're still... <laughs> And we're still in touch with our humanity as we're ingesting this news. As, as you realize, like, I mean, one, imagine being the news right now. Imagine not just looking at the news. Mm -hmm. Imagine these families. Imagine these children. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really, really hard. Two, we talk about this on the show all the time. The importance of taking mental health breaks. Right. The importance of kind of protecting yourself, especially when a news cycle can become incredibly depressing, incredibly triggering. Um, but in this case, it's also, I think, very important that we do stay up with the news. Mm -hmm. I think it's very important that, well, of course, you want to look away to protect yourself if you're really feeling down. Right. At the same time, it's very important not to look away um, and, and, and to really follow all the developments in what is a horrifying story for this country. Right. And I would say the developments and, frankly, the rhetoric, and we're going to talk about this in a moment, mm -hmm. the rhetoric that's kind of being used to downplay and dance around what's actually happening. So to that point, uh, here's a tweet from Jed, Judd Legum. Uh, Laura Ingram describes the detention facilities where children are sent after being forcibly separated from their parents as essentially summer camps. Now, did you go to summer camp when you I were did go to I summer camp. Did you go to summer camp? Yeah. yeah. Do you yeah. remember the cages? We, when, I, I don't remember cages. Mm. I don't remember lights being on 24-7 in the facilities where I was held. Mm. Uh, no, say, and say that again, because I think that was an important Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was surprised in reading the reporting that in these detention facilities where these kids are in cages, like, the lights are on 24-7. They're really bright. Like, it's just like, that sounds like like torture, kind of wearing people down yeah. strategy. And you, listen, you have mental health experts who are coming out and saying that these parents being ripped from, I'm sorry, these children being ripped from their parents is literally affecting their mental health. It is having an abusive effect on their brains. Right. I don't remember, I mean, I remember missing mom and dad. Right. I don't remember being torn from their arms and not knowing where the hell they are or where the hell I am yeah. as I'm boarding an airplane in all sweatpants. Like, I'm sorry, I'm gonna get incredibly mad because to call it like summer camp mm -hmm. is so misleading. It's a lie. And we it's need to a talk. lie. And to that point, I mean, you also have people like Ann Coulter. And listen, the only reason I'm even talking about Laura Ingram and Ann Coulter, in which case she referred to them as child actors, is because this strikes me as intentional rhetoric mm -hmm. that they're now using to downplay concerns because now they can't pretend like families aren't being separated. They can't say it's just fake news. No one's being separated. We all know families are being separated. So instead, they're moving to like try to like walk it back. And it's not working. And I'm sorry. In the case of people like Ann Coulter, using it as an excuse to get their names in the goddamn headlines. Mm. Using their rhetoric as a way to get attention on themselves. But what's really happening is horrifying. Here's a tweet from ProPublica. ProPublica has obtained audio from inside a U.S. Customs and Border Protection facility in which children can be heard wailing. Border Patrol agent jokes, we have an orchestra here. We have an orchestra here. So let's listen to it. It's a short clip because it's overwhelming. Let's listen to it for a moment. Bueno, aquí tenemos una orquesta. Okay, so that audio clip was given to ProPublica um, and an attorney. Her name is uh, Jennifer Harbury. Um, she's a well-known civil rights attorney who's been working in the Rio Grande Valley uh, for years. Um, and it was given by an anonymous employee who's, you know, fearing retaliation because they were so heartbroken by what they were witnessing. So they handed it to the attorney, and that's how we got to ProPublica. I which, mean, it's... Which, good on you. Yeah. Good on you for releasing that, for getting that into the hands of the attorney. Good on the attorney for getting into the hands of ProPublica. And because because it's going to be so important in these coming days and weeks. The more stories that can come out like this, the more leaks like this that can happen, the more this story will stay at the focus of the news cycle and the more people will become 
motivated to try and change these policies. Yeah. And, and I, I think this audio tape was so important for many reasons, but in part because you have people like Christian Nielsen uh, just, you know, totally sidestepping and, and, you know, saying, well, I haven't seen the images. I don't know what you're talking about. And that's that's hard to face when the, the evidence is coming out. So I think these audio tapes are really important to listen to. It's seven minutes. And again, you can find it on ProPublica's website because we, we have to look at the evidence that's being presented when people are telling us not to. That it is being presented. And again, when people are saying things like, oh, it's exactly like summer camp, those are children crying. That's not a summer camp. That's not the sun setting on Camp Lake Waiaka yeah. as you're in a canoe. Like, no, these kids have been taken from their parents. I'm sorry. I'm just... Yeah, a little emotional. It's, it's, it's intense. And again, you know, more than 2,300 children have been separated from their parents since April when the Trump administration launched its zero tolerance policy. More than 100 of those children are under the age of four. So to that point, uh, here's a tweet that we'll leave it with for now from Olivia Newsy. I played that audio clip by ProPublica today at the White House briefing. Officials fail to adequately and truthfully answer questions about the policy. Shout out to you, Olivia, for playing it. Yeah, and, and they sure did. And we we are going when we go live the, from the district. We're going to be talking about yesterday's prep com conference and how misleading it was. But for now, here's a story out of our own backyard. BuzzFeed News uh, reporter Brianna Sachs tweeted, "Wow, one in five New Yorkers who wear religious clothing have been pushed on subway platforms. Roughly one in ten has experienced physical assault that they knew or suspected was a quote result of race, ethnicity, or religion." Those numbers are from a new report compiled by the city's Commission on Human Rights, obtained by BuzzFeed News reporter Cora Lewis. Uh, the report also found that 10% of Muslim New Yorkers are prevented from practicing their religion at work. 10%. Which is illegal. That is wild. All right. Friend of the show, Stacey Marie Ishmael, shared a personal story upon seeing these numbers, these reports, uh, and the findings. When I lived in NYC, I wrapped my hair. Then a woman started pushing people she thought were Muslims in front of trains. I cut off all of my hair instead of wearing a wrap in public. Because listen, I mean, just knowing that any person is, is being treated and maligned because of their religion is horrible. But particularly for New Yorkers, mm -hmm. there is nothing scarier, I would argue, than being on the subway platform and, and the thought of someone like pushing you. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's this absolutely terrifying. And it also speaks to this idea, I feel like, especially as we have stories like the children's separation story out there in the world, a lot of people would say, well, like not where I live, yeah. not where I am, but the, racism is everywhere. It's everywhere. New York is not exemplary. Well, to that point, Carmela Morales, uh, chairman of uh, chair of the NYC Commission on Human Rights, joins us now. Good morning, Commissioner. Good morning. Thank you so Thanks much for, for joining us. Of course. So, okay, this report it, it's pretty shocking, but not entirely perhaps surprising. What findings stood out most to you? Well, I think, you know, some of the numbers that you've already cited were are pretty striking, but also just the fact that, you know, over 70% of the people that we surveyed, and in this survey, over a three-month period, we were able to survey over 3,000, over 3,100 people, actually. 70% of those people said that they didn't report the discrimination or harassment they experienced, even in a city like New York City, for various reasons. Some of them because they were everyday indignities that they said they were just used to suffering and who would care about them. Some people were, were fearful of reporting because they thought, why would somebody believe me? But a lot of people also just didn't know where to report these types of incidents. So one of the main drivers of undertaking the survey was so that we could create awareness that there's actually an agency in New York City, our agency, the New York City Commission on Human Rights, that wants to be there so that they can file claims and complaints of discrimination and harassment when they're occurring, whether they're in housing or in public accommodations or employment or on the street. We are an agency that wants to be taking in these complaints. We want folks to know that we're there to have their backs. And that they can reach out to you. I want to ask, Commissioner, why was it important to you to commission this report and why now? Well, you know, one of the things that we noticed over the, you know, over the 2016 presidential election uh, season was basically that if you looked at human rights related agencies like ours, if you looked at law enforcement agencies generally, there was an increase in reports of discrimination and harassment and incidents of hate and violence. So we thought, okay, what is happening locally? And what we saw also during this period was that, for instance, you know, there was a five-month period where we saw three Muslim New Yorkers, three people in Queens, murdered. We saw that there were acts of anti-Semitic vandalism uh, in parks in Brooklyn and other areas of the city. We saw that 
uh, uh, people who were wearing religious clothing, like women in hijabs, or were objects of physical attacks. And we said, we need to be capturing this information so it's well documented, not just for us and other city agencies, so we know how to better respond to, to these types of discrimination and hate violence, but also to help the communities. We, as government, I think, have the responsibility and the resources to put this information together and to provide it to these communities, oftentimes who don't have the resources to get this data and get this information so that they can use it also when they're looking for resources and funding and other things. Um, Commissioner, in the reporting that you got, you know, and in the results, was it, did you see frequent parallels or connections being made to the impact of policies like the travel ban uh, from the Trump administration um, and, you know, the, the rampant spread of white nationalism kind of, you know, receiving more attention? Was it fair to say that, that, that these were related, like it wasn't just a coincidence that we're seeing this rise? Well, I mean, I will tell you that the whole reason for the report and covering this period of time and the, the actual survey period, you know, we were asking for experiences uh, between July of 2016 through the end of 2017. The whole reason we focused on that period is because even reporting into the agency, we saw that, you know, over basically that two year period, we saw a 30 percent of in, in increase in claims based on race and national origin and religion. Uh, and immigration status. And we wanted a way to really quantify what was happening. So the whole reason that we focused on that period was was to monitor what was going on, which we knew were already increases uh, in, in acts of discrimination and harassment. All right, and now that the city has these numbers, um, uh, what actions will the city take? I know you talked about you wanted people to be able to reach out to, to your department more easily. How, how are you gonna implement that? Well, you know, you know, one of the things I, I mentioned and one of the things for me as government that was so striking, again, is that 70 percent of people surveyed who had experienced discrimination harassment hadn't reported it anywhere. So certainly one of the things we want to do is to encourage reporting to the agency. We want people who have been affected or damaged by discrimination and harassment to have a place to report it. And so one of the things that we're doing at the Commission on Human Rights is we're launching uh, a pilot referral network with our you know, community organizations and faith-based organizations to create this network so they have information on the commission, they have information on how to file complaints, how to report to the agency, and using the people who are already on the ground working with these different communities, we're hoping that there is much more, uh, you know, there's much more accessibility to the agency. People can come in, they can file complaints with us, they'll know how to do it. We also want to work with other city agencies to make sure that you know, folks who are public facing at city agencies, they have a better sense of what to do if these situations are occurring right in front of them. Uh, so one of the, the other things that we're recommending and we're planning on putting together is basically developing a bystander intervention training for, for city employees who are public facing and working with staff, working with people in the public. So as they see acts of hate violence, there's something that they can do about it. One of the things I, I frequently hear, you know, not just from city employees, but from people in the public, is they say when these things happen, and they happen all the time, people are frozen, they're paralyzed, they don't know exactly what to do. And so I think it's important to have these types of bystander trainings so that they are ready, they're prepared, they know how to spring into action, what to do to interrupt the violence when it's happening, of course, not putting themselves in, in the, the path of violence, but just knowing how to interrupt that violence so that the person who's experiencing it or experiencing the discrimination is, is able to also experience some form of safety or comfort to somebody else who's witnessing it. Absolutely. Well, important findings. Again, thank you so much for joining us this morning, Commissioner. Thank you, and I would encourage folks, of course, if anyone's experiencing discrimination, if anyone uh, witnesses it, please do report it to the Commission on Human Rights. You can get us at 311, ask for human rights. You can also get us directly at 718-722-3131. And please take a look at our report and the other resources we have on our website at www.nyc.gov slash human rights. Thank you so much, Commissioner. Appreciate it. Uh, I should also mention that the commissioner is on Twitter. You yep. can follow her. Um, and we just tweeted out her Twitter handle right then. Um, and also, like, look, it's the phrase, see something, say something. What, what, what that phrase really needs to be used for. Yeah, exactly. See something, see, say something. All right, well, listen, up next, we're staying with the family separation story when we go live from the district. But before we do, as we've said, this morning has been a lot. So consider this next video by BuzzFeed News producer Danny Menendez a mental health break. Whew. A needed one. Mm -hmm.
Welcome back. We're now going live from the district with BuzzFeed News politics reporter Lysandra Villa. Good morning, Lisa. Good morning from a very chaotic week in Washington. Absolutely, and it's only Tuesday. To that point, Lisa, here's a tweet from Kyle Griffin. Someone on the show just tweeted it to us, and thank you, Kate. I'll read it now. The President of the United States is using the word infest to describe the actions of a group of people in the tweet in question. Democrats are the problem. They don't care about crime and want illegal immigrants, no matter how bad they may be, to pour into and infest our country, like MS-13, they can't win on their terrible policies, so they view them as potential voters. Lisa, that's where we are this morning. Um, frankly, you know, as, as someone who works on Capitol Hill and speaks to politicians all the time, are you surprised to see the president of the United States, frankly, doubling down on, the, on this aggressive, racist, perhaps, language um, in the midst of, like, such an uh, overwhelming bipartisan pushback? I have to admit, I'm actually not that surprised. We've been here before, right, where the president chooses to do something and then punts it to Congress and leaves it to them to solve a an issue of his own making. So here we are again. This, this actually is starting to feel like a familiar news cycle. Yeah, disturbingly familiar. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, here's a tweet from Politico's Jake Sherman on yesterday's White House briefing. That was wild. Uh, Congress can fix this tomorrow, says Kirstjen Nielsen, ignoring everything we know about Washington and Congress. Lisa, a lot happened when Nielsen took the podium yesterday, but let's break down the truthfulness of what she said. To start, here's a tweet from the White House. Enough of the misinformation. This administration did not create a policy of separating families at the border. Lisa, can you break down the rhetorical gymnastics the White House is using here to avoid responsibility? Yes, it's, it's actually not that hard. Let me boil it down for you. So the administration decided to choose a policy that they would prosecute adults who are coming into the United States illegally. And that results in children being systematically torn away from their parents at the border, which is why we are now seeing these stories. This is a direct result of the Trump administration's zero tolerance policy. So because they're choosing to pursue this policy, that's why we're seeing this today. So this is a direct result of what the Trump administration has chosen to do. Not anybody else's fault. Like Trump just suggested again in a tweet that this is on Democrats. Again, Trump's doing. Trump's doing. Well, also another question. Is the administration lying when it says that these children who have been separated from their families are, quote, in good conditions, as Nielsen said yesterday? Well, we've all seen photographs from the border. We all heard the ProPublica tape yesterday, the audio recording where you can hear children crying. Dan Bergano put out an article on Friday saying that there are long-term effects to these children that are likely to follow them into adulthood. So I, I have a hard time qualifying that as good condition. I don't think anybody actually sees that as a good condition. So, so yeah, not good conditions. Um, let's talk not about the condition. congressional response to all this. Here's a tweet from our own Kate Nassera. Republicans widely say they don't like the family separations at the border, but it's unclear they can do anything to end it, despite Trump saying they need to, and especially after the White House says he won't sign a narrow fix. So, Lisa, what, if anything, can Congress do? So what the White House is sort of suggesting they want now is a full immigration overhaul. And this is something that Congress has not been able to pull off in a long, long time, right? The Senate had its immigration debate and wasn't able to pull, move anything forward. The House is looking at two immigration bills this week, or is supposed to. Um, and it's those, the future of those is, is uncertain. And then it hits the, the additional hurdle of the Senate. So it's not sure what's going to happen there. Um, so there's there's a lot, like I said earlier, the Trump cre administration created a problem. Now it, it's on Congress. It's been passed on to them. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Well, uh, who is Trump supposed to meet with tonight? He has a, He's having a meeting with Republicans. I'm assuming immigration uh, will, uh, you know, be an important part of that. Who's in that room? Absolutely. So those two House immigration bills that I mentioned, that's what Trump is supposed to come to the Hill to talk about this evening. Um, he'll be addressing House Republicans right before their first vote series, which normally takes uh, place at 630, the day that they come back for votes. Um, so so we'll see what exactly is, is supposed to happen. It's definitely going to be immigration oriented. And there are House Republican uh, Republicans who are against the family separation. I am sure that that's going to come up. So we're, we're looking forward to seeing what Republicans say 
coming out of that meeting. And it's being against the policy and then showing action against the policy. We'll see what plays out there. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for your time. See you later. See you later. Up next, I'm sitting down with Dan Reynolds of Imagine Dragons. It's going to be a great conversation. Stay tuned. All right. Yeah, I'm looking forward. This is The Sit Down, and I'm here with Dan Reynolds from the Grammy Award-winning, one of the biggest bands in the country, Imagine Dragons. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. Great. Congratulations on everything. I know you're on the road right now, really hustling, but we really appreciate you coming in to talk with us. Of course. Um, you, you basically, I want to talk to you about your new HBO documentary, Believer, which talks about how the Mormon church treats its LGBTQ youth. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's take a look at a quick clip. I was told this was Dan Reynolds. Love your music. I'm struggling a lot with self-acceptance because of my sexuality. I have no idea if you support same-sex marriage since you are a Mormon, but if you do support it, thank you a lot, and it means the world to me. I know that there's so many people like this. If I'm passive, I feel like I am standing then for bigotry. So standing for bigotry is not something that you want to be a part of, but why did you want to make this documentary? I think there's a lot of people who, um, because you're raised in a certain circle or environment, the easy path is to just kind of be a product of that. Um, and, you know, I look at older generations and not knocking older generations, but I feel like a lot of people just follow the path of their ancestors and follow the ways and the beliefs that they were brought up in. And you don't want to rock the ship. And I think one rad thing about this generation is that I'm seeing more and more people who question things and question the beliefs that they were taught when they were young. And I think that's an important way to evolve as, as a society. And so for me, you know, I was, I was raised with specific teachings and if something didn't fit in that box or it didn't affect me, then I didn't put my mind and my heart into it. And I think that's a dangerous way to live. And I think that uh, that is hurting our LGBTQ youth because there's these teachings within Orthodox religion that are that uh, are no, there's no question about it statistically that it's leading to higher depression, suicide, anxiety within LGBTQ youth when you tell them their innate sense of being, their most beautiful sense of being, their, their sexuality is flawed. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm hoping to, to perpetuate change within Orthodox communities. So, and I want to ask that, do you, you yourself raised Mormon, do you remember when you started to question that? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I was always a little bit of a questioning youth and rebellious. That's how I got into music when I was 12 years old, as I was writing songs about how I wasn't sure about Mormonism quite, but I would hide it in all these metaphors so that when I showed my dad or mom the song, they wouldn't know what I was talking about because I didn't want to let them down. They were very orthodox. And um, But, yeah, I think in middle school, one of my first best friends that I made was gay and Mormon, and, and I saw that conflict, and we couldn't even really talk about it because it was so heavy for him. And I hated to see that. And I knew that he wasn't choosing some, you know, harder life for himself. It was just his innate sense of being. And I knew that as a child, that was fine. Mm -hmm. But what I was being taught at church was different from that. And so that was when the conflict started where I said, hey, something's not right here. You know, whereas if you're being taught in church, like love one another, you're like, yeah, that, that sounds cool. All right, Jesus, I'm down with that. You know what I mean? It's a good message. Yeah. But then all of a sudden there are limitations on it and you're like, now wait a second. So you started questioning yeah. it as a youth, but then you made this documentary. Um, watching it, I could see that you were kind of learning so many things in real time. What surprised you the most when you worked on this project? You know, I think, I'm glad, I'm glad that you can see that because I think it's important, especially in this society today, another thing that we, that people are, we're afraid to say, you know what, I don't know this. I don't understand this because you're afraid to offend someone. You're afraid to look like the stupid person in the room. But I think it's cool to be the stupid person in the room. I actually have a lot of respect for the person who says, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Someone explain this to me mm -hmm. um, because that shows a humility. That shows a willingness to learn. Um, so yeah, I think uh, the whole process, I mean, one thing I don't even know, it was like learning you know, pronouns, learning how to speak correctly about things where you're not offending people, um, understanding uh, the life of, of someone who is transgender and, wh and what that entails. And there's just, there's so many things along the way that it's really beautiful to learn because you become, your heart grows and your mind grows. And, and it's like, I don't know, 
it's, it's, I think it's an important journey for everybody to take. Absolutely. And one of the things you do in this documentary is, uh, you know, it's your learning process, but you really try not to be at the center of it. So I wanted to ask you, how did you pull that off? You're a straight man making a film about the Mormon church and how it treats its LGBTQ youth. Um, how, how are you able to kind of pull off exploring the story without making the story about you? That's a great question. I think that that's something I'm still learning. Um, for me, I, I know that I'm a privileged white heterosexual male. I've never had I've never had somebody make fun of me for being heterosexual or for being white. Um, and so that privilege, my goal is to use that, to recognize that, and use it to to speak out for those who have been unheard, mm-hmm. who have been unjustly unheard, and. Um, at the same point to put the spotlight on our LGBTQ youth with this platform that I've been given. It takes such a little effort for me. It's not, this is not some heroic move. This is a very small move to be able to hopefully shine a light on those who need it. And it's sad. To me, what is sad? It's sad that it takes someone who is white and heterosexual to make a documentary that's put out. I recognize that, it's sad, but you know what? I'm, that doesn't mean I'm not gonna do it. I mean, and you, you can know? call it small, but here's the thing, you do have this huge platform. Um, how much of what you learned and what, you, what you've kind of experienced and, and come to figure out, did you learn from your fans? Oh, so much. I mean, traveling and experiencing different people, different cultures, having conversations with different people, has been everything to me. I grew up, what we, you know, as a child, your community is the world. Mm. I thought the whole world was Mormon when I was a child. I right. genuinely was like, ah, 99% of the world's Mormon, okay. Um, and so until you venture out and you get older and you see, oh wait, this is like one less than 1% of the US, which is like this tiny dot in the world, like then you start to have this expansive kind of mindset and view towards the world, which I think everybody needs. Mm-hmm. I think it was uh, Charles Dickens who talked about the, the necessity for everyone to travel. You must travel. Um, you know, in other countries, they just send their kids out mm-hmm. to see the world. To have these kind of shifting perspectives. Yeah. I do, I, I'm gonna read off my iPad here because I wanna get these figures right. The suicide rates for kids in Utah are just absolutely shocking. Uh, It's the leading cause of death among 10 to 17 year olds, and youth suicide rates are 60% higher than the national average. You yourself have been really open and honest with your own mental health. Why do you think it's important to have those conversations? Oh man, I mean, listen to the statistics. It's it's devastating, and and I'm so burnt on, I've had so many people who say, well, you know, like there's higher altitude in Utah leads to higher suicide. Altitude is not going up 60% in Utah. You know what I mean? It's, 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 there's, that correlation is not there. Uh, the statistics are there. And I think it's pretty evident. Why do you think somebody's going to feel good? Do you think that a kid's going to have a healthy life if you tell them, hey, I, you can tell them I love you all day. I love you. I love you. I even accept you. But by the way, your innate sense of being that's unchangeable, the ability to love, which is the most beautiful thing in the whole world, don't do that, okay? Because right. that's that's wrong with you. But I'm gonna do it, right? Because it's cool with me. Because I because I'm heterosexual. And it almost turns the love that you're trying to show the person into a, a form of forgiveness, which just isn't right. So I gotta ask. Yeah. How do you want the Mormon Church to change? I want the. I can't change the doctrine. It's it's. I can't. I'm, I'm not a prophet. I don't claim to know anything like that. I can't speak on behalf of the Catholic faith or or Muslims or I can't speak. I can't change religion. What I can do with this little platform I've been given is hopefully perpetuate change in the culture so that people of Orthodox faith say, you know what? They sit down and they listen to someone who is LGBTQ actually talk for 15 minutes. They see their life story and their heart opens because I believe in the goodness of people. I believe that when people see something, we generally are, are good and our hearts are open and once we become educated to it and see beyond ourselves. That's when change happens. I want dinner table conversations. Mm -hmm. I want Easter Sunday, the mom and dad to say, you know what, maybe our gay son should be able to bring over his significant other, and you know what, we should embrace him the same as our daughter and her boyfriend. Mm -hmm. Like that, that for me is way more meaningful than some, you know, prophet or something to say, God has spoken, and it's it's cool to be gay now. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. cool. I would love it if that happened. Right. I think it would save a lot of lives. Absolutely, it would. Um, but I, you know, but for when you, is that it's about happen? people taking action that they can in their everyday lives. And I want to say thank you for taking action. 
I really appreciate it. Uh, listen, thank you for being here, Dan. Believers, the documentary, it premieres Monday, June 25th on HBO. Definitely be sure to catch it. Up next, Saeed and I are going to do some fire tweets. That's where we read some funny I also wanted to say happy Juneteenth, <laughs> which, you know, still here, still black, still paying attention, not afraid to use the word racist if people are using racist language. <laughs> still excellent. That's my gift to you, Juneteenth. <laughs> ah, crazy. All right, let's get to these fires. Yeah, you want to you wanna burn it down a little bit? That's out here. Uh, this yeah. comes from Leah. Today, I saw two girls holding their friend's hair back because it was very windy, and she was trying to eat a donut. I love seeing women support each other. Mm. It's true. You don't want Amen. to like, get into the, you know, the Krispy Kreme. You don't want, yeah, yeah, exactly. You got to hold that back. Hold <laughs> like, that help back. Me, help I like me. that it was two. That's yeah, the extra. I feel like when a tweet has that certain je ne sais quoi, uh -huh. and in this one, it's that it was two. It's not one person holding <laughs> the hair like back. a lot of hair. It's, yeah, it's yeah. Two, two friends. That wigography. Okay, so to that point, we want to ask you this question, Twitter. What is the weirdest thing you have ever done to help a friend out? Let us know mm. using the hashtag. Isaac and Saeed's friendship. Oh, wow. <laughs> Do you have an answer? Do you have like a weird, a uh, weird thing? Oh, God. No, yeah, so I can, Do you have one? Well, oh. I'm going back into earnest. Okay. I'm sorry, guys. Oh, Isaac's feeling really earnest today. <laughs> I apologize. It's, it's, it's understandable. Uh, but Dan Reynolds, he mentioned his friend who, who he's mm. grown up, and it was Tyler Glenn uh, from the band Neon Trees, who was raised Mormon mm. and gay. Mm -hmm. And basically, I think through that relationship, through that friendship, is what motivated Dan to be like, you know what? I want to make a documentary on this. I think this is such an important thing. So, like, uh, weirdest, very bold. Uh, you know, it was pretty I'm cool to start a documentary for you, buddy. Okay. Uh, we're yeah. coming. We're, we're going to combine earnest with, like, hair. Okay. Because I know if some of y'all have seen this video. It's really funny. There's a video on Twitter that's gone viral of three little kids playing with water guns. I have you seen, seen by the pool? They're playing with water it. guns by the pool. And there's a white boy with like the water gun and he's about to shoot the two girls. And the white girl is standing in front of the black girl because she knows like a black girl getting her hair wet is a problem. Is gonna change the day. And she's like, day. no! <laughs> Like you are not doing this to my guy. and I'm like you better be in formation. That is yeah. wonderful. I'll retweet it later today if I find it. Good. So yeah, let us know. And use the hashtag aim to DM. What's the weirdest thing you've done uh, for a friend? You shall not pass. I love it. All right, let, here we go. KT Nelson, you tweeted, "Stop saying millennials aren't having kids. My posts are my children." <laughs> And I'm deeply disappointed in oh, all of them. Oh, man, mm. levels to yes. that, KT. Yes, that's all how right. I feel about my tweets, too, you know? You, you do take them very seriously. I do, and I'm very disappointed oh, in them. Oh, I support usually. you all the time by, like, workshopping your tweets with you. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? I don't uh, know. Yeah, do you have a contraction yeah. here? Is this okay? Is this okay? I do do that Friendship. To him. I do. This one comes from F. Mary Abraham. Very elegant name. Um, I once heard Ska described as, what plays in a 13-year-old kid's head when he gets extra mozzarella sticks? <laughs> And nothing in this world is more accurate. Man, ah. I love this tweet so much, and I've been sitting on this all morning. <laughs> the mighty, mighty Moz Tones. Yes! Mozzarella wow. joke! Mm, feeling, wow. oh, feeling real good about that one. See what we do with our friends? <laughs> See what we do for friends. put up with our friends. Shy, you tweeted, I was going 50 in a 40 and I passed this cop, right? He tried to U-turn but ended up hitting the curb and fucking up his tire. May your enemies always fail like this. You all have a blessed day. Mmm, yes. Why, did you just snitch on yourself? <laughs> <laughs> Hope that cop's not I on Twitter. I burner account. <laughs> Don't, you know, you got your face in your avatar, boo. Anyway, <laughs> let's get to our tweet of the day. It's from Dave King. <laughs> Worried that psychologically as a nation, there might be a little too much riding on this Mr. Rogers documentary. Oof. 
Yeah, man. That's just real. Just putting a lot of pressure on all our glimmers of hope. Listen, Ariana Grande has a single coming out tomorrow, and I'm like, I am just, all my eggs are in that basket. It's so true. I'm not, I'm, <laughs> I swear to you, I've been putting off the Mr. Rogers doc because it's really? like going to be my breaking case of emergency, and I think it's are now. Are we there? Yeah, I think we <laughs> what are else absolutely could you be there. waiting to happen? Listen, up, <laughs> next, up next, we're talking about how to redo your apartment so you'll actually enjoy your staycation this oh, year. Oh, no, I love a staycation. You, you love a little plant. You love a little apartment de it's decoration. True. It's true. Oh, don't let me buy that. It's like you. The second season of Queer Eye just dropped, and it's putting me in a serious self-improvement mood. Here's a tweet from our lovely producer, Julia Moser. If Bobby from Queer Eye can renovate an entire house in a week, I can finally put up the removable wallpaper that's been sitting in a box in my closet, which I ordered the last time I was seized with the spirit of self slash home improvement after I watched season one of Queer Eye. Julia, that's a mood. This is Save Today, brought to you by Wendy's Four for Four Meal, and I'm joined by BuzzFeed market writer Emma McAnow. Hey. Is that right? Mackinac. It's I'm all good. <laughs> Emma, you wrote this post, 36 cheap ways to make over your home. You do have one tip about removable wallpaper in there, which I have to say is something that I have envisioned for myself and then not thought I could actually pull off. Right. So give me the tip. So you can easily update your space with usually overlooked spots, like an open pantry or an open closet. And it just makes the most out of your space, especially if you have like a small apartment. And the best thing about removable wallpaper is that it's renter friendly because you can just like easily take it down when you move out. But for the time being, it does all the work for you. You don't really have to hang anything up when you have so much pattern. Yeah, getting into our New York City specific home improvement tips here. In my last apartment, I had, it was very old, and I had a ton of just like random pipes and random spaces. Yeah. I had no idea how to make that look cute. So what are your tips? So there's actually this really great artificial ivy vine that you can hang up on pipes. And not only does it cover up those random pipes, I have them too. I don't know what purpose they serve. I'm sure I'm supposed to. But they also add a little fresh greenery without having to worry about killing plants because I kill everything. Yeah, that is so <laughs> smart. And obviously another thing that we suffer from in New York is we don't have enough space for anything. Right. So what are some tricks to make our houses seem bigger than they actually are? So a common misconception is putting your area rug in the middle and having your furniture surround it, but that actually makes your room look smaller. What you should do is put all of the furniture in the middle so that it creates the illusion of more space on your floor. And if you can't do that, just put the first two front legs of all of your furniture on the edges and it just makes it seem bigger. I've heard about hanging a mirror too, is that true? Yeah. If yeah. you hang a big mirror, um, they can be a little pricey, um, but it does add so much space, especially if you're trying to make the most out of natural light. For sure, for sure. Uh, so I, obviously the big trend right now is gallery style walls. Yeah. You know, everyone on every <laughs> home blog that I read has them. But you don't realize when you're trying to build that, that if you want, you know, 30 frames on your wall, yeah. each it's frame expensive. is pretty expensive. Yeah. Exactly. So how do you think I could hang a bunch of art on my walls without going broke? So a cute little trick is using wooden skirt hangers. Uh, they look a lot like poster hangers, but you can buy them in bulk on Amazon and they're super cheap. So then you can have like various sizes and colors of your favorite prints hanging from those hangers. And yeah, it's like an immediate accent wall, but you paid like 10 bucks. Oh my gosh, that is yeah. so smart. Well, Emma, thank you so Thanks much for, for me. joining me. Uh, now I have this much needed push to go to HomeGoods and buy everything. My husband's gonna be so One pleased. day. Yeah. One day. <laughs> Good luck on all of your home improvement journeys from us to you and read Emma's posts for even more awesome ideas. More Ants GM is up next.
Nearly 2,000 children have been separated from their parents after the Trump administration has implemented its zero-tolerance immigration policy. Joining me now is Antar Davidson, who recently quit his job at a migrant youth facility because of how he saw the children there being treated. Uh, good morning, Antar. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me on the show. Of course. So to start, um, I guess I would ask first, how quickly did conditions in your particular facility change once this zero tolerance policy went into effect? Well, it kind of quietly crept up over the, the, the last six weeks I was there. Um, there was uh, a noticeable change uh, in basically the population that of kids. It's a fairly transient facility. So new kids were starting to show up that were younger and less informed about the process. The Brazilian kids, uh, there were seven of them who were separated. Most of them were separated from their parents except for one. They had no idea of what the process was. Just to give you a little context, prior to that, uh, the kids who were showing up had been accustomed and prepared for the journey that they were about to be on because uh, we had the same uh, immigration policy for the past five years. But when this happened, those kids uh, stopped showing up and they, they also were showing up, but there also started to arrive kids that had been separated from their parents and weren't prepared in the same way. Okay. And, and so that was the change that you were noticing in the kids who were arriving and their sense of being just totally overwhelmed and, and shocked. Um, for you and your colleagues um, working, you know, to take care of these kids, what was one of the significant changes you noticed? Well, first of all, uh, making $15 an hour with no benefits, you're already stressed out. So it basically these, before we were used to dealing with kids that were much more calm for the most part, they were older and they were calm because they knew what they were getting into. They left by themselves. They were aiming to get to their sponsor. Um, and basically the new kids that came were really acting out. I mean, if you're five, six, seven, and you don't know where your mom is towards the end of the day, uh, you're gonna, the, these kids are gonna act out, you know? A kid is scared uh, of the dark, kids are scared of the dark. So imagine what it would feel like for a kid when they're uh, separated from their parents in a place where they don't know, you know, in a facility and also not knowing where their, their mom or dad is. So it was at that time that an overworked uh, and underpaid staff had to deal with, you know, trauma of these kids that requires very specialized uh, training. Wow. Well, you know, from February to last Tuesday, you worked at Estrella del Norte, a government-sponsored detention center operated by Southwest Key. You quit um, after you were ordered to tell three siblings not to hug, which I just, I can't imagine. Um, why was this your, you know, final straw? Well, I had previous, well, first, I, it, first and foremost, it made me aware of the fact that if I, despite the good that I was doing, I had a very successful Capoeira program and I was mentoring the youth and had a lot of good relationships. So I felt that I could do change in, in within the organization. Um, however, when I received this order, I, I realized that uh, basically because of the way things were going, there would be more situations that would arise in which I would be basically ordered to do things which I felt were immoral. Um, also, I had done research on kind of the funding um, prior to this. And when I, I found out that the CEO uh, and Newsweek also found this out between the CEO and his wife, who's a vice president, they make a million and a half dollars annually from the running of these facilities. Um, and have they claim over a hundred million dollars in assets that were public used, that were paid for with public money and now privately owned. So when I was commanded to do that, it made me acutely aware not only of what could happen to me in the future through working there, but also the lack of compassion that this organization had uh, for these kids in such a vulnerable time for their life. Despite seeing them as, as ch children who were suffering, they're looked at just as dollar amounts and reminded the rules very sternly regardless of the context. And to that point, uh, Kirsten Nielsen yesterday, you know, now notoriously said, you know, these children are being taken care of. They are in, quote, good conditions. Um, but that doesn't quite sync up with what we're seeing in reporting and from what we're hearing from you. Uh, based on what you saw, do you feel it's fair to say that these kids are in good conditions? Well, sure. Good conditions in that they have a bed and they have food. They have that. I never I never actually said that that was not the case. What I said is what I the point that I'm trying to bring out is. These kids are being placed in public schools. They're being reunified. We have a duty as, an, as a nation to basically absorb these kids 
and and make sure that they're adequately prepared to be in, in public schools with other kids. And so when we're when I say that we're mis- abusing them, it's, it's in the fact that we're sending these kids out unprepared. Um, a lot of the talk is centered around border security and, and protecting from MS-13. Well, when we anger these kids, we give them not only the monetary, we anger them and inadequately prepare them to be productive members of society. Not only do they have economic reasons for joining an organization such as that, but they also now have ideological reasons as well. So if people want to talk about border security, I don't think there's few, there's, unless you live in Tucson, one hour from the border or a place close to the border, um, it's hard to, for someone to tell me that they know more about border security when they're in Washington, D.C. With a, with a security detail and I'm here you know, raising my family an hour from the border. Of course, I'm concerned about border security. I'm also concerned about how our public funds are being spent. Fair point. Um, what kind of training did staff members receive to deal with this influx of children? Well, initially, we received one week of training. It's 40 hours. Um, you learn uh, read, you know, you learn the rules of the facility, uh, the, the responsibilities of the job, kind of suicide prevention counseling, uh, first aid skills, and uh, you learn CPI, CPI holds, which are Conflict Prevention Institute holds, which are, de- are designed to safely uh, secure minors physically. So uh, we, that was like our initial training. There's two days of on-the-job training where you kind of shadow a mentor on the, on the floor. And then as, as over the past six weeks, we had begun getting much more ref- like refresher courses on the proper techniques for these CPI holds. Um, as they had begun using them more because when a kid is traumatized, they're going to act out more. So these kids, because of the trauma that they were experiencing, they were much, they were just much more rowdy. They were very young and they were just running around and throwing chairs and hitting employees. And, um, and so they're, they started to use more of these holds. They needed more of these holds because these kids were, 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 could not, would not, and could not listen. Um, and so it was, it was, it was definitely very noticeable, this this kind of change. Yeah, clear change taking place. Well, Antar, uh, thank you for joining us this morning. And frankly, thank you for coming forward because again, um, you know, we're really dependent on the perspective of people who were there on the ground to let the rest of us know what's happening. So thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you. I'm just a concerned citizen trying to make sure we do the right thing here in the United States. Right on. All right, thanks friends. Um, when we come back, we'll have a little bit more AM to DM this morning. Morning, and yet again, it's just getting started. I just saw this tweet from um, Senator, uh, or yeah, I think it's Representative Tom Cotton. He said, uh, "Democrats keep families together." Bill is better called the Child Trafficking Encouragement Act. So that's uh, the morning we're heading into. Anyway, and thanks it's for joining Tuesday. us. <laughs> it's it Tuesday. It's Tuesday. Yesterday was a long ass Monday. Mm-hmm. I was like, "Is it still?" Mm-hmm. That was a month long ass Monday. Anyway. Uh, let's see what you guys had to say. Here's a reaction from Ocelot to the ProPublica audio, which, again, is just, you have to listen to it, but it's intense. That little boy sobbing for his papa is unbearable. Yeah, I also was struck, there's a, a you know, there's, and I think a lot of people have talked about her, a little girl who had the number of her aunt memorized. So it's like just all she was like focusing on and they called the aunt and, and, and so she, sp- she speaks to ProPublica and she just, imagine, mm-hmm. you're an auntie. You know, minding your business, and then you get a call. And I think the girl, little girl was like six years old. You're getting a call from her, panicked and for help. It's just And saying that she's alone. She's alone. You know? Like, what's that's happening? the first Can thing you, you ask. Her? If you see a child yeah. on the street, the first thing you ask is, where is the adult? Where is your mother? Where is your father? Mm-hmm. And these people are, these children are alone. Mm-hmm. And to have that phone call, to have her pick that up, that's going to, of course, be your first question. Yeah. And that she's on her own. So all I got to say, as of Tuesday, whatever day of the month it is, June 2018, we've got children in Cages. We've got children separated from their parents, and we've got the president of the United States using the word infest. That's where we are. Infest. I'm sorry. I just want to talk about this real quick. Infest implies execution, extermination. Well, we use, yeah. That, we use, that is, is the language. Yeah. That is the language. It's violent, violent language. And we yeah. say this on the show all the time. Words have 
meeting. Absolutely. Um, a little bit of a more positive tone here, uh, a turn from Joe Lee to my conversation with Dan Reynolds mm. of Imagine Dragons. This segment with Dan Reynolds is an example of how to be an ally. Thank you for seeing the pain of queer youth and for doing something about it. He was so thought. I mean, it re- I mean, it's been, you know, a morning, guys. <laughs> I think that's very obvious at this point. And your, your conversation was so thoughtful, and I think he spoke with such nuance, you know, and, and generosity of spirit mm-hmm. um, that I think, frankly, applies not just to dealing with homophobia uh, in, in the Mormon church, but obviously a lot of what else is going on. And so, yeah. yeah, I'm excited to watch his documentary. Yeah, absolutely. I really, sitting down with him for me, uh, I learned a lot while I was talking to him. You can tell when somebody has actually invested a lot of thought That's true. into something. You can tell when somebody's really, yeah. really thought When it's not just like it. a vanity project or a whim. And he's yeah. really thought through it. And I, I, you know, I try to be a decent ally all the time, but when he started talking about the ways in which allies make mistakes, mm-hmm. sometimes putting themselves front and center, not being quiet and listening when it's time, it's important to have these conversations because sometimes you can also just be scared into silence and silence leads to inaction. And that's the thing. For, for me, the word of the day almost is action. Mm. I was really moved that he took action yeah. and I, it wasn't just words. Yeah. So shout out to you, Dan Reynolds, because whew, <laughs> need all the help we could get today. Okay. Uh, and here's a theory from Rachel Hay Girl for, for, that's really funny. Um, Isaac was totally a Boston Scott kid. Is that true? I was punk, man. Oh, okay. I was punk. Get out of here with your sky. No way, man. <laughs> Punk through and through. I just through. remember really liking Gwen Stefani's pants when she was kind of in that ska movement. Yeah, that's, pants with the dog bar. The no doubt just era. Her. That's yeah. just her, though. Nobody else. <laughs> I think Gwen Stefani learned Nobody that else. and realized that pretty quickly, too. Uh, that's true. She was like, okay, moving on to my next look. There it is. <laughs> To my solo style. <laughs> to my solo style. Uh, Kirsten Baptiste, you uh, you you put in, uh, let's say, some real support. Real. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, this is about talking about the way we support our friends. My friend got an unannounced FaceTime from a crush, and we were changing clothes. She was coming out of her bra, and I held her boobs up so they wouldn't fall when she answered. Luckily, it was a quick call. That's incredible. That is a supportive friend. You were, stop it. You so, were a real one, Kirsten. Yeah. <laughs> We've been new. We've been new, but, you know, the evidence just continues to manifest. <laughs> and shout out to all of you that talked about it this morning. You know, way to be good friends. We love it. Good supportive friends. All right, thank you to all of our guests today. Dan Reynolds, Commissioner Camellin Manalis, uh, Lysandra Villa, Stephanie McNeil, Emma McEnaugh, and Antar Davidson. Thank you all for joining us today. We will be back tomorrow. It will be Wednesday. It will be 10 a.m. We will be here for you to talk about the news in hopefully a thoughtful and kind manner. Love you. Thank you for being a friend, Twitter. Mm. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs>